Acts chapter 5, as we consider this story that was read for us earlier. Almost as far back as I can remember, which is pretty much my earliest days in church, I have known the Old Testament phrase, though not always remembering the reference, be sure your sin will what? Find you out. Now, that's threatening in a sense. It was kind of uttered in a a pretty calm kind of situation. Two and a half tribes wanted to reside on the other side of the Jordan and claim that as their inheritance rather than moving into the the actual promised land proper. And Moses said, what, are you not going to fight with your brothers and sisters and conquer the land? And they said, no, obviously we will do that and then we will return to this land. And Moses says, well, make sure that you do because if you don't, you're, you're sinning against God and against your brothers and be sure your sin will find you out. Well, that phrase is good for us to have echoing in our minds because it is so easy for us in the face of temptation to think that no one would ever know. When we entertain Satan's ideas and pursue temptation and sin, we will know the sting of sin's consequence. Years ago in my summer camp ministry days, one of the speakers would say it simply, you can't sin and win. You can't sin and think you're going to get away with it. You can't sin and think that there's no consequence. When from the very beginning of God's revelation to humanity in Adam and Eve, he said, if you transgress this simple boundary of not eating of this one tree, you will surely die. Brothers and sisters, how can we avoid this painful path of sin's ruin, of sin's consequence, of sin's judgment? The answer, I think, emerges from our story. We must be filled with God's truth in order to crowd out Satan's lies. We must be so filled with God's truth that it crowds out the lies that the devil bombards us with. We sang it earlier, with shield of faith and belt of truth, we'll stand against the devil's lies. Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, said, and having done all to stand, stand therefore. But having done all to stand implies we've bolstered ourselves with the truth. We know who God is in all of his goodness. We know from James 1 that every good gift comes down from the Father. So why later in James 1 would I believe the lie of the devil in trying to entice me to some other gift that he wants to offer? We must be filled with God's truth to crowd out Satan's lies. Our story is about lies. A lie that Ananias and Sapphira offered to God, to the Holy Spirit, and to their church family. When we are filled with God's truth, it will crowd out the devil's lies and will keep us from engaging 
in the lives. And so the question is, what truth in this story, kind of a dramatic story, what truth in this story helps us to resist the devil's lies? We want to add to our truth belt this morning so that we're armed and ready for this fight against the devil's lies. We start with the paragraph that kind of sets up chapter 5. We looked at it briefly last time, but let your eyes go back to chapter 4 and verse 32. And we read, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. What truth is revealed in our story that will help you resist the devil's lies? Number one, truth about the generosity that love produces. The generosity that love produces. We see this generosity unfold in this selling of goods to provide for those in need. We find this kind of surrendering expression of laying those proceeds at the apostles' feet. This kind of visible sacrifice being made, but it's done out of love for the brothers. We know that great grace is upon them all. They've experienced God's grace. They're going to demonstrate God's grace based on, a key word there, the need that was evident. This is generosity, a love-motivated sharing. We all know what sharing can look like. You need to share with your sister. And they shove it over the table. Fine, you can have some. Do we think of that as generosity? No, that may have been technically sharing. Some of yours went to them, but it wasn't love-motivated sharing. That's what's defining the church in this early stage of its growth. Generosity is a love-motivated sharing. It's a loving heart that is evidenced in a giving heart. And what we see is that this generosity is voluntary. We mentioned this a few weeks ago in Acts 2 when they were having all things in common. This is a voluntary sharing. This is not communism, which would say everything is the state's. This is not socialism, which you might have private property, but all of the benefit, all of the profit is shared. That's not what's going on here. This is a voluntary generosity. In verse 32, the words are there, It belonged to him. It was his own. In verse 34, owners of lands and houses. Verse 37, 
He sold a field that belonged to him. And in chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira bring their gift, Peter's response is, listen, this remained as your own. Everything in the text says, your stuff is God's gift to you. You're the steward of it. Nothing in the text is saying there's some kind of mandatory equality that should rule in the church. So make clear notes in the text about that language of ownership and be ready to dismiss any any critique of the early church or, or any cultish draw on the biblical text saying, see, we're supposed to all get together and share everything in common. That's not what the text says. What the text says was stewards of what God had given them decided that there was a genuine need and they gave to meet that need. That's it. It's voluntary and the text is clear there that it was based on need. Verse 35, they distributed to each as any had need. So much of what we hear in our modern day about wealth regards equality, that somehow everybody should be on the same status financially, the same level. The Bible isn't saying that. The Bible has always recognized that God will dispense gifts and benefits as he sees fit, and you manage what he has given you. You be a faithful steward of it. That's what's required of you. This this generosity was focused on need, not equality. We don't have to believe the nonsense of so much of what governments get caught up in. Some kind of equal standing for all. No, because when we really start looking at Scripture, and it's a little side note here on our next point because the Bible doesn't give us a lot in chapter 4 or 5 about how to know when to be generous. But let me just mention that generosity involves discernment. And I think the one expression that would make us think of discernment is there when Peter says in verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? There's that stewardship of private property. It's what God has given you. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Was it not in your hands to exercise wisdom on how to give that out? And I think we should just note a couple ideas that help us think about discernment in generosity. Because here the text is just revealing the Spirit's work of unity and love and how it overflowed in giving. But elsewhere... The Bible goes on to unfold some guiding principles for our generosity. For example, Galatians 6 and verse 10. Do good to everyone. Be a loving person in general, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's a discerning principle of prioritizing people in need. 2 Thessalonians 3. If anyone is not willing to work, neither let him eat. It's not the only thing the Bible says about giving or generosity, but it helps guide our discernment of the property God has given me that is at my disposal. I don't have to give to every person who looks poor. I should govern that heart 
to help with biblical principle. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy to unfold some guidelines about who the truly needy people are. And even though they are widows, they may not need the same kind of care that what he calls a true widow needs. Someone with no family. Someone of a certain age who isn't able to do certain work. These principles and others just remind us that we have God's blessing financially at our disposal, which means governed by biblical wisdom. And we shouldn't be naive, nor should we be stingy. But we can be wise and discerning in our generosity. When we look at this paragraph on the church's generous love, we realize that we can be tempted by a lie. A lie that may have been part of the lie that Satan whispered into the ear of Ananias and Sapphira. But beware of the lie that all of my stuff is mine. I've worked hard for it. Why should I give it to somebody else? Well, because Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. So we have an example in the very salvation of our souls, the gospel that explains an answer to us for why I should take what I worked hard for and give it to someone else. And ultimately, when we really come down to Scripture, all the things we've earned and all the things we've received are still under the umbrella of this is the grace that God has given you. What do I have that I haven't received, Paul says. So don't believe the lie that all your stuff is yours. Instead, crowd out that lie with the truth. All that I have is from God, and I'm a steward of it. And my stewardship should be characterized by a loving, wise generosity. That whole paragraph comes to us, and then, moving forward from it, we have that one little word of contrast. But, here's how the church experienced great grace. They were all of one heart and mind. They're helping each other out. When someone has a need, I can help you out a little with that. And this is great. And here's this one example of Barnabas who sold some extra property he had and he gave it all to the church. And they just recognized that as this great encouragement. But, a man named Ananias and his wife, also sold a piece of property. The text is set up to show us a contrast, the sweetness of the spirit-filled, loving church, wise in their generosity, but generous they are. And then we contrast that with Ananias and Sapphira and what we will be told of them. And now we see the second truth that can help us crowd out the devil's lies And it's truth about the temptation that Satan designs. They sell their piece of property. And the text in verse 2 tells us they agree to a certain amount to keep back to help themselves. And they agree to present the rest in the same manner that Barnabas did, which gives the impression of, like Barnabas, they gave all that they had. Peter, 
apparently led by the Holy Spirit. We're not told that specifically, but I, I'm, I don't know how else our human discernment would be able to understand this lie. So we'll assume that's by the Holy Spirit that Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And then that same lying to the Spirit is attributed as as lying to God in verse 4. Why has Satan filled your heart? It's an interesting expression. It is prompted theologians to wrestle with the question, were Ananias and Sapphira believers or not? The text doesn't tell us, so we, we can't know for sure. If I were pressed for an answer, I would say yes, they are. Only because of the previous paragraph seeming to describe a, a church that was full of great grace on all of them. That's the best answer I have for you. Believers or not, this does not need to be a question or a proof text for can a believer be demonically possessed? That's a slam dunk no. Of course not. So don't even entertain that question. This text is simply using this word filled to describe the language of influence. Why has the devil so influenced you? Why has he bent your ear to believe these lies? Or as Paul would write to the church at Ephesus, why did you give a platform to the devil to talk about these things? He uses that in the language of Ephesians 4 as don't give place to the devil. Don't let him fill your head with ideas. Don't believe the lies that he's whispering. Be on guard against these traps that he's setting, the fiery darts that he's launching. Why has Satan influenced you in such a way that you would choose to lie to the Holy Spirit? How is this a lie? Again, it was this feel-good moment of, I surrender all. When they had agreed to, well, we're going to keep some of this back. I don't, we don't want to be as radical as Barnabas was. we got to live after all. We have a right to some of this. You're right. You do have to live, and you do have a right to it. But you presented it in such a way that made you look good. Ananias and Sapphira are trying to mimic the Spirit's work in Barnabas. I think that's why the text connects it so strongly. Look what Barnabas did, but look what Ananias and Sapphira did. Frankly, there's very little difference on the outside. They simply kept a little bit of the money back, which was their right to do, Peter said. So the problem isn't that they kept something back. The problem is they suggested that they gave all. You don't have to give your old paycheck in in the offering box. But don't, don't boast on being righteous and, and generous if your heart is fearful and, and stingy with money. God completely expects you to exercise wisdom and to use your funds wisely to provide for your family. You'd be kind of like the unbelievers and worse if you were so foolish as to not provide for them. So nothing in this text is saying you have to give all. 
They weren't judged because they held something back. They were judged for what they wanted people to think of them. They lied about their spirit-prompted righteousness. We see what spirit-filled giving looks like in Barnabas. There's the heart to love others. We don't see that in Ananias and Sapphira, but they wanted to be known for it. They lied to the Holy Spirit, claiming to live as righteous, generous, loving people, but that's not what they were. They first made sure they were taken care of. So we need to understand these lies of the devil, his temptation, because it worked all too easily with Ananias and Sapphira. Let's go back all the way to the Garden of Eden. It didn't seem like you needed to be a tempting wizard to get Adam and Eve to sin. And if we're honest about our past week or two, the devil doesn't always have to be on his A game to get us to sin either. So we need to come to this text realizing if we're not filled with God's truth, we're really just easy pickings for the devil and his temptations. So if there's something to learn from Ananias and Sapphira, it's to learn the truth about these temptations that the devil designs so that we will be ready with truth to ward him off. What do we need to know about the temptations that Satan designs? From James 1, remember this, Satan appeals to our desires. He appeals to what we want. Hear Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What you value, you're going to go after. This is why you could have a husband working too much and neglecting his family. It's not because he hates his kids or hates playing ball with them or something. No, it's because he found something he values. Maybe it was the money from the extra work. Maybe it was known as being a great worker and provider. But he values something that is keeping him from investing in his family. Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What you value, you go after. And Satan appeals to that valuing in us. He paints pictures and he tells lies to help us think that looks really valuable. The question is, what did Ananias and Sapphira want so much that cost them so much? Well, our text says they kept back some of the proceeds of their property, verse 2. They kept back. They wanted the security of stuff. We don't want to be destitute like some of the people who are in need that are being helped by the church. So we don't want to give everything, and then what if we run out? What if we don't have enough? They wanted the security of stuff. They kept back. It's interesting, when the Old Testament is translated into the Greek language, we call that the Septuagint. It's what they would have read in Bible days. This same word shows up in a familiar story of Achan. Where, where he kept back. God said, don't, and, and he said, I, I need to keep this. I value that. I find value and security and that kind of wealth. It's interesting, when Achan kept back, it was in a similar stage, a new beginning, a, a season of conquest 
had begun, the advance of the kingdom. In the book of Acts, we're at a beginning. We've entitled the study of the book of Acts, the advance of the kingdom. And here's this people of God pressing forward and yet in the hearts holding back, still thinking, I need to take care of myself. I need to get what I want out of this. He kept back. They wanted the security of stuff. But then it says they laid at the apostles' feet this offering. It's designed to be a paradox. I'm keeping back, but look, I'm giving. I'm going to make sure I'm taken care of. But oh, I'll, I'll trust the Lord to provide, and I'm going to give what I have to help those in need. They wanted the praise of men. They wanted people to think that they were radical givers like Barnabas. To be clear, the problem was not in keeping some, but in claiming to give all. Satan appealed to their desires to be secure and to be liked, to be esteemed in the church. We should know that Satan appeals to our desires, but we should also know something about what Satan desires. What does Satan desire while appealing to our desires? He desires our ruin. He desires the rest of the story that you read. The end of Ananias and Sapphira. Satan desires our ruin. Jesus had told Peter just hours before the betrayal, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, to so shake up your world that you'll question your faith. If Jesus had just said it to Peter, listen, you're going to be so fed up with everything you've heard and experienced in these last three years, you're going to say, I quit on all of it and I'm going back to fishing. Peter would have said, like he said other times to Jesus, no way, not me. Because he didn't understand just how aggressive Satan could sift someone's faith. Satan desires our ruin. Satan hated the way the early church loved each other in chapter 4. Hated the way they were giving to each other. Satan hated the way they were starting to look a lot like Christ. They They were starting to sound like him. He hated that. He hated the unity. He hated the progress, the advance of the gospel. He hated the great grace that was being manifest in the church. He hated the church then and he hates it now. And our story is about Ananias and Sapphira and their particular sin, but do you realize that Satan so hates Grace Bible Church that he wants to use one of us to ruin the unity and testimony of this church. What an invitation that would be. Who wants to cooperate with that agenda? Well, then hear this text that says, you need to be bolstered by truth. The truth about Satan's temptation so that you're ready to fight it off. Satan will appeal to your desires this week, but his desire is to ruin you by it. So beware. We will be tempted with the lie that it looks good, that it will bring pleasure. But Hebrews says, beware, 
of that lie because that pleasure of sin only lasts for a season and then the sting of the consequence comes. Crowd out that lie with the truth. Every good gift comes from the Father above. And if I don't have it, it's because God has said it's not good for me. I don't need the devil whispering in my ear, telling me what I've missed out on or what I should indulge in because it would be good. He's lying. And the same Peter of our text is the Peter that wrote, be sober and vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, hates you. And he walks about like a, a roaring lion looking to devour. So know what's true. What truth will crowd out Satan's lies? Number three, truth about the holiness that God demands. The holiness that God demands. Verse five, Ananias heard these words. He fell down and breathed his last. And fear came upon all who heard it. Verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And again, verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church. Why such a harsh penalty? Instant death. Well, I would ask the question, is it really harsh? Why, are you, why would you ask that question? The wages of sin has always been death from Genesis on. Sin always has a death trajectory. It's always destined for ruin, destruction, death. So this text isn't severe. It's just a little shocking because we're used to, we're used to kind of a timetable. And we'll talk about spiritual death the fall into sin. Or we'll talk about future consequences or future judgment. Just keep in mind that sin always brings about death. And we've seen it again in the story of Achan. We've seen sudden death in the life of Herod, who's going to, that'll be exposed later in chapter 12 or so. The real question we should probably be asking is, why doesn't God work this way today? Why doesn't sin, whether it's the believer's sin or the unbeliever's sin, why doesn't it just end with immediate consequence, death? Number one, God may work that way at times. I, I'm not ruling out that God won't cause death because of sin. I just don't know by what way I can dogmatically measure that. The scripture hasn't given me those tools. But I should learn from this text that God may choose to allow death to be the immediate judgment on any sin. Generally speaking, this seems to fall into the same category of the signs and wonders we've been studying in the Sunday school hour. God was revealing the truth of his holiness and the purity of the church in a unique way for this unique stage in the church's history. As the New Testament unfolds, we will find the prescription for the normal process of maintaining the church's purity. We call that church discipline. When Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 5, or Matthew would give his account in Matthew 18 in telling us how to deal with sin in the church. That's kind of the prescriptive normative plan for dealing with sin in the church. 
But I think God can reserve the right to at any time go back to this measure should he choose to do so. So while we may not argue that this was severe, we should at least acknowledge that it's shocking and that shocking nature of the sudden death on these who lied to God should teach us two lessons. Number one, God is holy. And number two, sin is costly. God is holy and sin is costly. You see, God is holy. And because of his holiness, he demands that we, his people, be holy. But sin will cost us our holiness. Oh, I know we think it costs us judgment. That's kind of really the result. What we lose, what we have to give up for sin is our holiness. Which means in the fall into sin, we had to surrender our ability to stand before God in holiness without the threat of judgment. That's the ruin of the fall. Not that we would be judged. That's kind of the the result of the fall. The ruin of the fall is we surrendered perfect righteousness, perfect holiness for something that we valued more. We treasured something, and Adam and Eve went after it in Genesis 3, but they gave up their standing before God. Dead bodies being carried out of the gathering of believers made it clear that the gospel of Jesus Christ is our only hope for standing before a holy God. Because clearly two people that we recognized as good people faced death for their sin. They were unholy and God will not stand for that. So the gospel, the good news is that you and I can be declared righteous by God when we trust in Jesus for his righteousness, for his forgiveness of sins, for his life earned as he conquered the grave will be tempted with this lie that sin is a small thing. It's not a big deal. Nobody's perfect. Get off my case. But it has to be crowded out by the truth that our holy God demands from us holiness. And the only hope of standing before God and being welcomed into the joy of his presence, heaven, forever, is that you be perfectly holy with no history or record of sin to your account. And yet you and I should all know that that seems impossible. We didn't make it through getting ready to go to Sunday worship without sin, perhaps. That's why we love singing His robes for mine. What what a wonderful exchange that my sinful robes, my sinful record, my law-breaking was charged to Christ and he suffered for it. And his law-keeping and his righteous record and his righteous robes become mine so that I can stand before a holy God and I appear to be holy. I'm declared to be holy and righteous, but it's the righteousness of Christ. It's not my own. So what will it look like for you this week 
to be aware of the devil's steady and sometimes subtle attack on your efforts at living a holy life? Will we even be aware of the devil's steady, sometimes subtle attacks on our efforts to live a holy life? Can we even say we made an effort at the holy life? Finally, to crowd out Satan's lies, you need the truth about the choices that you make. Listen to the choices of Ananias and Sapphira. He kept back. He brought. He laid at the apostles' feet. He lied to the Holy Spirit, lied to God, and kept back. You have contrived this deed and lied to God. You have agreed to do this. We will be tempted with the lie of, I couldn't help it. I was overwhelmed, or one I hear too often, not to betray any family incidents, it's not my fault. Why don't we just revert to almost the comical expression, the devil made me do it, right? After all, if there's ever a story, here it is. Why has the devil filled your heart to do this? The devil made me do it. But the text will have nothing of that excuse. Peter's question is, why did you do this? Why did you lie? Why did you choose? Let's face it. Can we we really even keep saying with integrity that we stumbled into sin? When more often the text is like more of a cannonball? Like you're on the deck of the pool and you're just like, you know, I value that. I want it. Cannonball. And then we, on the other end of it, say, yeah, I don't know. It just, I, I, I fell. I don't know. I don't know if we did. I, I just, I, I have to be done with that because it just feels like I can push it off onto something else. Whatever lie you're tempted to believe about, it's not your fault, I couldn't help it, it's just the way I am, it's my besetting sin, it's my nature, all of that has to go. Because Peter's point is, you choose to sin. And I think Peter has Romans 6 on his side. Like, you're not a slave to sin, you don't have to do it. You are a slave to righteousness, that's what you should be doing, but but don't say you're a slave to sin anymore, you're not. That undermines the power of the gospel we're announcing. Remember chapter 3, the lame leaping? Jesus transforms your life. We often sing of chains falling to the ground. We are not bound to sin. You don't have to do it this week. So learn the truth about the choices you make and reject this lie of the devil, it's not my fault. Instead, crowd out that lie with this truth. I choose to love God by doing what he says, or I choose to love myself by doing what I want. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So the truth you need this week about choices is this. If I love Jesus, I will do what he says, though my heart may be raging in desire for something that's sinful. 
I will choose to do what's right. It's my reasonable act of worship in that moment of temptation. I choose to love God by doing what he says, or I choose to love myself by doing what I want. That's the sum total of every sin encounter you will have this week. Every temptation, that's the choice on the table. So let's not complicate this story of Ananias and Sapphira. Let's keep it simple. They chose to sin because that sin looked really good. And and make no mistake, I am not saying the devil is bad at temptation and that sin doesn't look good. Quite the contrary. Scripture is clear. This will be spiritual war. But you're equipped for it. You can so be filled with God's truth that you can fight against and crowd out the temptation and the lie. So I want us to see your next choice. What is your next choice based on Acts 4 and 5? Well, if you're in the Barnabas camp, you're walking in the Spirit, you're trying to get this right, you're trying to love God's people, you're trying to obey the Spirit's prompting, he just gave his gift. All I can say to the Barnabas is, is trust and obey. Keep trusting God and keep obeying his promptings to do right. Keep up the good work. Be encouraged, believer, if you're not feeling the conviction of any known sin. But just know you have to keep maintaining that. Keep trusting God's word to you. Keep obeying it. But what if there is sin in your life? What if the Ananias and Sapphira story makes you kind of step back and think, what if God had done that to my sin this week? Hidden secrets, hypocrisy, pride, the love of impressing people and being thought well of. Well, here's your choice. Confess and forsake sin, Proverbs tells us. And find a heavenly father to be merciful in his forgiveness. Turn away, repent of that sin. And we don't have to have a an invitation at the conclusion of the service where you do that here. You can do that now. You can give some time this afternoon to really thinking through what lie did I believe that led me to that sin that I'm confessing? Because I want to war against that with God's truth. Confess and forsake and know that sweet restoration to fellowship with God. Well, we'll end where the story ends. Verse 11 and great fear came upon the whole church. After such an eventful day, a deep sense of reverence and awe settled over them as truth dominated their minds. The truth about the generosity of God's love, the truth about the ruin of Satan's temptations, Truth about the implications of God's holiness. Truth about the responsibility to choose to do right. These truths produced fear, reverence, and awe of who this God is. I imagine there were some who walked home that day in a quiet unsettledness. Why did that sin warrant that response? When I know what I'm harboring, 
Parents may have faced some interesting questions from their kids. Dad, you apologized for losing your temper last night. Why didn't God strike you dead? Well, son, when it says great fear came upon them, we, we have to remember, you might know this story, but they didn't know this story, right? They had to live through it. Ushers, if you'll come forward, please, and carry out Ananias. Later on in the teaching, act of worship, apparently. No, I guess not. Ushers, if you'll come. No, when have you heard ushers come? It's usually to take your money, right? Not to carry out dead bodies. So this is a pretty unique situation. I think people probably laid awake that night in some kind of self-examination, wondering if God was going to continue to do this in response to our little dabbling with sin. Maybe there was some prayerful confession that night in light of what they had seen. Maybe when the Bible talks about fear and trembling, maybe there was a a bodily unsettledness at the thought that their unholiness before God had just been displayed before them. And it must only be his mercy that they weren't carried off and buried that day. From the people who saw this happen, you would not get any argument to Paul's conclusion in Hebrews 12 that our God is a consuming fire. So this morning, we must learn this lesson of the holiness of God and the costliness of sin. May we be filled with God's truth to crowd out the devil's lies. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. What a shield it is. What a sword it is. What a refuge. What a place of belonging. May we be people who so love your truth that it changes the way we engage in spiritual warfare. That we, like the one we seek to imitate, find ourselves saying, but wait a minute, it is written here. And we shun the devil's lies. May we remember that our Savior made a spectacle of this enemy at the cross. Now in our sin there. Why should we give any place to this defeated enemy, regardless of how he paints and doctors up his lies? Oh Lord, give us the wisdom of your word to engage and to win the battles we will face this week, perhaps this day. Thank you for our victory won at the cross. May we bask in it. Would you lead us in holiness down the path of righteousness for your name's sake? For so we pray in the name of you, our Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.